What is it that is needed? Um, at school, I remember learning of Maslow, is that his name? Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. Um, it doesn't seem that kind of sensible. I mean, like, like it's, it's very obvious. He said, no, we all have lots of needs. Some of those needs are more basic than others. You've got to get the basic stuff in place before you get the higher level stuff. Um, we, we have lots of needs. Some of those needs are more foundational than others. What is it that is needed? On one occasion, the Lord Jesus visited his friends, Martha and Mary, and in their house, poor Martha was distracted uh, by all the busyness. She's rushing around. She's got too many plates spinning. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Uh, Perhaps this morning you can identify with Martha and her Many things, so many things concerning her. We feel that, can't we? We feel it in our own personal lives, so many things going on. Or, or it could be that as we look at the world around us, we feel it too. We, we think about the society in which we live. And there are many things that we can be worried and upset about. You just spend a few minutes flicking through the news headlines and you can make a long list of things in our society that are broken, uh, things that are complex, things that are terrible, things that are confusing. It is very easy to be upset and worried about many things. And you think, well, Jesus, can he really be right when he says few things are needed or indeed only one? What is needed? Uh, We come to this bit in the Bible that Damien read for us. It comes from that book of Isaiah set in the 8th century BC uh, to The place is ancient Jerusalem. The people are a complacent people, as we saw last time. These people have been enjoying in Jerusalem a long period of prosperity, and in that time they have become spiritually sleepy. And and so in the first bit of Isaiah 5, we looked at it last time, Isaiah sings to them a love song. He puts their story into a song, uh, a song which tells of God's great goodness and how that goodness has been thrown back into his face. The song compares the people to a lovingly nurtured vineyard, which has every benefit, but instead of producing the good grapes that it should have done, it brings out this bad fruit, this stink fruit. Stink fruit that is all the worse because of how opposite and contrary it is to its purpose. And we saw last time how that, that story in the song tells an ancient story. The world, all the world was made in great goodness. God provided every benefit, but people threw that goodness back in God's face turned away from the maker and all the wrong that is done by people is so much the worse because it is opposite and contrary to what we were made for and so the vineyard song tells how the vineyard will be destroyed people who have wanted God out of their lives will get what they want and it will be terrible so verse 7 Isaiah explains the song he's been singing he says the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for that good fruit. He looked for justice, but saw the stink fruit of bloodshed. He looked for the good fruit of righteousness, but saw the stink fruit of cries of distress. But he doesn't stop there. He continues in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And the passage we look at this morning builds in weightiness. And under it all, I think the question which we want to keep asking is, what is needed. See, if we want to know what's needed, we have to look very carefully at the problem. If we have a superficial diagnosis, it will lead to a superficial treatment. 
If we're told that there is some water coming, um, we might think that all we need is an umbrella. But maybe some careful investigation will find the water is a tidal wave and the umbrella solution is not going to do any good. Now, the Vineyard Song has said it is a stink fruit society. Uh, and as Isaiah goes on, the passage we're looking at, he flips between talking about woes and therefores. What he does is he, he gives a portrait of the stink fruit society, unpacking all that imagery from the song, and then he shows the destiny of the stink fruit society. And that's how we'll look at it. We'll look first at this portrait of the stink fruit society, and then we'll look at the destiny. Now, this is a message which was given to ancient Jerusalem. It's not about our society. And and yet when you read the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, it says that that we are to use these things of old as examples and warnings. That that, that is, we're to read passages like this and treat it like a mirror. As we look back at what was going on in ancient Jerusalem, we are to look into it and see likenesses to what is going on for us. So I say the passage goes back and forth between woes and therefores. Six times Isaiah says, woe, and he describes the society. Very important that we hear this right. Uh, This is not a kind of, um, I I know, like a report to a government select committee on the state of society. It's not a dry commentary. The repetition of this word woe makes what we have here a funeral speech. And it's not a, wasn't he a lovely chap sort of speech. This is an outpouring of broken-hearted sorrow. Now, we've got to have this in mind. The implication of that means that there are tears streaming down the prophet's face as he says these things. Now, the six woes come, I think, in two parts. Two headline woes in verses 8 to 12, and then four quickfire woes in verses 18 to 23. Uh, But we'll just look through them, see what's going on. The first one, verse 8. This first one is all about prosperity. He says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. As I look to his society and he sees this kind of insatiable greed. People are pursuing personal prosperity, whatever the cost. Not cost to themselves, cost to others. See, the land in which they lived was a gift to them from God, and the land was to be evenly shared up between all the people. There were laws against taking land from others. So if you keep adding to your property, it means you are diminishing that of others. The prosperity isn't a problem in itself. It's the striving for more and more that has become the most important thing. And as they strive for more and more, it is not ever enough. Now, the second woe in verse 11 is about pleasure. He says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and tambourines and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Again, Isaiah looks into his society and he sees these are people who love to party. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what is wrong is that chasing pleasure has become the main thing. They just want a good time. All they want is a good time, whatever the cost. And the things of God are squeezed out. They have no regard for the things of God. Their spiritual awareness is dulled by their obsession for doing what makes them feel good. So it says they get up early to do it and they stay up late. It's as if they can't find enough time 
to, to, to do all that they want to do. They want more and more and more, but again, it is never enough. It's like the, um, the song in The Greatest Showman, which says, All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. Never be enough for me. And Jesus said, what profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he has everything, but forfeits his soul. But the anthem of the people is this. They want more, more and more. That's uh, the, the first word, more space, but it's not enough. They've got to keep adding more. And they want more time. That's the second one. Their time is not enough. They want more and more, but it's never enough. They chase prosperity and pleasure, and all they think is more. I need more. They don't care who suffers as they pursue their dreams. And Isaiah looks and he, he weeps as he sees all of this. Well, what about then for us as we hold this up as a mirror? I wonder what likenesses we see to ourselves. We want to ask, don't we, are we always grasping for more? Dreaming of more, whatever it is, more money, more stuff, more holiday, more. We're just always wanting. And whenever we get, we just want more. You know, you know that feeling, maybe this is just me, but when you've wanted something, maybe you want to buy something, you buy it, and when you get it, there is that sense of disappointment, isn't there? Because you just want more. More pleasure. Whatever makes you feel good, that's the only criteria we end up using. Does it make me happy? But then when we get it, we find that it's not quite as sparkly close up, and actually we want more. Somebody asked this question. It's really stuck with me. It's really kind of gnawing in my head. The question is, what is it we want when we can't stop wanting? What is it we want when we can't stop wanting? It's never enough. And we tell ourselves it will be, don't we? The next thing, that, that will be enough. Whether it's the next stage in life or the next, the, the next kind of thing that we're going to get or achieve or work out. When we get that thing, then that, that will then be enough. But it's not. And the craving for more deadens our spiritual awareness. The needs of the needy and the things of God get squeezed out. And Isaiah looks into his society and he weeps as he sees it. And the, the, then we come to the four quick fire woes which seem to build on each other. The first one comes in verse 18. He says, Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. And he's looking at these people, and as they go through life, they're, they're dragging sin and wickedness behind them. They leave a kind of trail of, of havoc and harm to themselves and to others. And, and yet it's, 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 it's attached to them with cords of deceit. There's a delusional element. They're not aware of how attached they are to their sin. And what do they say? They say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so that we may know it. That's what Isaiah's been saying. He's been saying their sin is going to catch up with them. He's been saying that they're running downhill with a cartload of wickedness behind them. Sooner or later, it's going to run them over. He's been warning them, God will not put up with their sin forever. But they look around and they say, things are always as they have been. We don't see any of this judgment, punishment. We don't... We don't see that. They don't take the warning seriously. So they mock Isaiah's message and they mock the living God. Now, the, the message of the Bible is always 
included that people do wrong. Only a fool would say they didn't do wrong. And the message of the Bible has always said that God will punish all wrongdoing. And yet many, many people over many, many years have heard the message, shrugged their shoulders and carried on regardless. Why? Because they're like the people in verse 18 and 19. They're attached to their sin, but don't think it really matters. It's common, isn't it? Now, I've often spoken with people who, who say they believe there is a God, who accept they do wrong, but when they hear that God will call them to account, they say, oh no, God is not like that. God is, I don't like a talk of, of judgment or punishment. I can't believe in a God who would punish sin. God is not like that. Now, who are they to say that? Who am I to say? Who are you to say what God is like? Mustn't we let God say what God is like? Now, maybe this morning that that describes you. Now, you know you do things wrong. But when you hear God calling you to account, you just shrug your shoulders. You don't, you don't change. You don't feel any need to change. And perhaps because like these people, you don't think God is serious. I guess related to that, many will people say, well, there's not really a God who tells us what is right and wrong to whom we have to listen. Yeah, without that God, then who sets up the standard? Without the God, how do we know what is right and wrong? And that's what Isaiah sees in his society. The next woe, it follows into verse 20. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Total confusion, isn't it? And and I think that's how it was in Isaiah's time. Don't we see that very much in our own times? In our kind of post-Christian society, so many of our moral standards come from our Christian heritage, but now we're at a time where society is trying to work out what is right and wrong without any absolute reference. And it seems the best answer people can come up with is that we have to look, every person has to look inside themselves to work out what they feel is right. And it's confusing. And inevitably, it's deeply damaging when society calls evil things good. Because then evil gets celebrated and good gets suppressed. But that's what happens when people make up their own rules, isn't it? That's how the next woe follows on, verse 20. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. The people who make it up for themselves. They put themselves into God's place. It's Genesis 3 all over again. God doesn't get to decide what is good in this world. We do. And how does that work out? What does Isaiah see in his society? Well, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. That's what their society celebrates. It's tragic, isn't it? Isn't that a tragic description of a society? That what they think is best, what they most admire, is when people become drunk. It's how shriveled and small they've got. Because these are people... Like we are people made in the image of almighty God. We are divine artistry. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Made for fullness of life with the eternal majesty. And yet they've got such a shrunken way of seeing life. That the best they can aspire to. The thing that they most celebrate. Is getting lashed. Losing control and doing stupid things. 
It's nothing new under the sun, is there? But it's just so small. I, I still find it astonishing when my peers today speak about getting drunk in the same way we did as teenagers. As if we never grew up and never discovered the world was bigger and more startling. And we never learned that we were more significant and life was worth so much more than that. So much more than our best moments being when we're controlled by alcohol. It's tiny, isn't it? The thing is, these people, they're sinning like that's all they're worth. That's what they're doing, isn't it? They're just like all of us, made with immeasurable dignity. Every human being has such astonishing value because we're made in the image of God, yet we, we sin like we're worth nothing. And the other thing it produces in that society in verse 23, they acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. If there is no higher moral standard, if God's not going to call them to account, then well, it just becomes harder and harder not to manipulate the system for personal gain. We turn a blind eye here, a blind eye there, and the measure of justice becomes, what's in it for me? Isaiah gives this portrait of the stink fruit society, and he weeps as he speaks of it. Breaks his heart to see what people have become. Now, how did he get there? How, how did he get to this point where they, they mock God? They think God is of no consequence and that there is no final accountability. Well, I think verse 12 points us in the direction of how they got there. They have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. How, how do they get there? They just don't know God very well. They don't know God because they don't bother to think about him. And for this people, their whole history is formed by the mighty works of God. The Lord rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to the land. He made them the nation that they are. But now it's all lost on them. They don't think about it. Same thing in verse 24. Verse 24 says, They have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's the pattern of things. You see it? They don't take the Bible seriously, so they don't think about what God has done, about his deeds and his works, so they don't think God is serious. They think that they're more important than God is. Now this stink fruit society has cut off the branch it sits on. It's all got turned upside down and Isaiah weeps. And the question under it, what is needed? What is the one thing needed? Well, the passage is made up of the woes and the therefores. The woes describe the society. The therefores tell what will come. So we move to think about the destiny of a stink fruit society. These people that Isaiah speaks to, they think they can carry on doing what they like. That They think everything will just go on as it always has and it doesn't matter. That's why he sang to them the song of the vineyard. He wanted to get under their skin. He wanted to show that vineyards producing stink fruit will be destroyed. And as he speaks on into our passage, he spells out what that will mean for them. The first step comes in verses 9 and 10. He says, The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. 
Now that first woe is about chasing more and more prosperity, more and more and more, and the end, says the Lord, will be less and less and less. What they're endlessly chasing will not deliver. A Jack Higgins, a successful author, he was asked what he would like to have known when he was a boy. And he said, what I would like to have known when I was a boy is that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Verse 9, all you are working for will all be empty. Now, the, the world in which we live is not driven by blind forces. The people might have thought, oh, oh, it's really easy. If we, whatever we put in, we will get out. If we just master the, the laws of biology as we, as we plant our crops, then we will maximize our produce. But they forget that all the laws and all the rules about which the world works are made and upheld by the personal God. Now, they forgot the Lord gives and the Lord takes. That's the prerogative of the Lord. And if they keep turning from him, he will turn his goodness from them. And they might chase more and more and more and more, but it will end with less and less and less. See, the destiny of these people will not be defined by them. It will be defined by God. They're not free to make it up. They can't make the world work in whatever way they want it to. They are made by God and for God, and everything is in the hands of God. And God is not a blind force. He is absolutely personal. So the reaction of God to their sin is is not a blind force. It is absolutely personal. And that's what we see in verse 25. If you look at verse 25, it says, Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. The Lord's anger burns. He's angry. His anger isn't like our anger. God is infinitely good. And his anger is that goodness directed towards sin. It's like the, the, the love of a parent might be seen in their anger towards someone who threatens their children. God's anger is an aspect of his goodness to those who threaten his world. And it says his anger burns against this people. It's very personal. The the shaking of the mountains, it could refer to an earthquake that happened at those times. Uh, But maybe it's just a way of describing God coming in his power. And as he comes in his power, even inanimate creation shakes and trembles before him. And his coming means devastation. The streets littered with the dead. God's holiness is right in the fabric of existence. There's an unbreakable connection between sin and death. God has promised and his word is true that all sin will be punished by death. And that's what we see here. In fact, if you look back to verse 13. He says, therefore, it's one of the therefores. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. And that exile, it's a picture of the death. It's a picture of separation from relationship with God. That's what death is at its heart, being cut off from the source of life and goodness. And these people will go to exile for lack of understanding because they have refused to know God. And it will affect all people. Those of high rank will die of hunger and the common people will be parched with thirst. It applies to all without favoritism. And those who insatiably chase for more and more it will never be enough and finally will meet an appetite bigger than theirs verse 14 therefore death expands its jaws opening wide its mouth and literally it says without 
limit. Death will claim them all. It's easy for us to, to hear this and think, now if we're really honest, now God's not really like that, is he? Now I can't really believe in a God like that, can I? As if it's up to us to say what God is like and not to let God say what God is like. And, and easy as well, I guess, at this point, just to kind of close our ears a little. We don't want to get unsettled, and this is unsettling, and and, and we don't see it, do we? We don't see this happening now. So it, it probably has nothing to do with us, doesn't it? Get on with our sunny Sunday. Verse 15 says, in effect, every human effort to get above God, every human effort to do what I have just said, to carry on without a reference to God and push God down or out. And it says, people will be brought low. And everyone humbled in the eyes of the arrogant humbled. Because there is a day when everyone will, seem, will be seen for what they really are. And it will be seen that despite all of our pretensions, we are not God. And there is only one God who is judge, and he will carry out his judgment in perfect justice. Verse, six, verse 16. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Only God is God. Only God will be exalted. And when he brings down the proud arrogance of people, he will show he is perfectly right and perfectly fair. Isaiah tries to stir these people up with more picture language in verse 24. You see verse 24? Another therefore, one of the therefores, therefore as tongues of fire lick up straw and dry grass sinks down in the flames. So their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Their activity will be drained of life like to become dust and ashes. Isaiah is putting before these people their destiny. The destiny of a stink fruit society. And it's hard going. And maybe the tears on his face make more sense as we consider where he sees it all going. And yet, as we look on ancient Jerusalem like a mirror, we might see some likeness to ourselves. God is not changing. He's the same then as he is today. And his dealing with sin doesn't alter from generation to generation. The destiny spelled out for these people is the destiny for all people who would reject God's ways. From verse 26, the weightiness of the chapter becomes almost unbearable. It says the destiny of these people is that God is going to summon a mighty enemy against them. And these people think God is going to do nothing. They mock him in verse 19 for being too slow. But verse 26 says when the enemy invades it will be all too quick. Here they come swiftly and speedily. The Lord whistles and this gigantic war machine is unstoppably brought into motion. This invading force will be untiring. Its weapons will be ready, flying like a storm. And verse 29 says they'll be like a helpless goat before a lion, seized and carried off and there's no one to rescue. Verse 30, the roaring lion becomes the roaring sea. And in that storm there is no help, only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. 
Are you able to hear this this morning? Now Isaiah is telling of the terror of being caught in the outstretched hand of the almighty God. And and as the chapter comes to a close, the message is so clear. The message is you cannot escape. You cannot defend yourself. All your prosperity and your pleasure seeking, it cannot save you. The end is only distress and darkness. And the horror is multiplied if you reflect on verse 25 for a moment. The end of verse 25 that says, Yet for all this, for all of this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Because the Lord Almighty will be exalted by justice. And until his justice is fully satisfied, his anger will not be turned away. So when we hold up this passage as a mirror to ourselves, what do we see? Now must we not see that despite the centuries that separate us, there is something all too familiar? That we have all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. We've tried to replace or remake God and justify the way that we live and we ignore his ways and his word is spurned. And so the hand of almighty God is stretched out, raised against us in anger because of the stink fruit in our lives. And our destiny is destruction and death's mouth is gaping wide to swallow us into eternal torment. What is needed? That's the the question running under all of this, isn't it? What is needed? Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. And with Isaiah 5 ringing in our ears, maybe with the tears of the prophet pouring out before us the final note of despair that says only darkness and distress surely the question that we want to ask don't we want to ask can anything turn away God's anger that's what is most needed every other concern and worry and upset however great it may seem everything else is dust on the scales compared to this question can anything turn away God's anger or is our destiny only darkness and distress at the end of this chapter if we pause we might hear a faint whisper even in this chapter are laid crumbs of hope even in this chapter the rumour quiet as it is at this time the rumour that a new vine is coming a vine good and true like the vine at the start A vine that does produce the beautiful life, a wholesome and a happy life. The whispered message to those living in the stink fruit, into darkness and distress, the whispered message that builds through the scripture is that you can be grafted out of your stink fruit vine into the new vine. And our hearts may say, but what about all our decay and our dust? 
And the whisper says with the promises of scripture, when you're grafted into the true vine, his life will flow into you. His life will make you clean. His life will wash away your filth. You can have his life in you. But with Isaiah 5 before us, won't our hearts say, but what about that upraised hand of God's anger? We can't deny our sin. Judgment must fall. Sooner or later it must come. With a whisper. Growing in strength as we read through scripture says, yes, this passage is very important. But it's not all that is to be told. Yes, the hand of God's anger must fall in the most terrible judgment. There would be no justice otherwise. It must fall. But it need not fall on you. You see, friends, when we read a few chapters on, we come to Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah 9, we hear about people walking in darkness. We hear about people living under the shadow of death. People who's, who are destined to destruction because of their sin. And we read about how on those people, a light dawns. And that light, Isaiah 9 verse 6, is that a child is born. A son is given to bring in the eternal reign of peace. And this child, this son, he is the one who in the fullness of time came. And given the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And this Jesus, the God-man, he came to put himself under that upraised hand of God's anger. So that on the cross, that hand might fall on him. And all the divine fury of the sin of his people would be satisfied in his dying for us. The cross is where God is exalted by his justice. You see, there is only one escape from the anger of God. And it's for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to be punished in our place. It's only at the cross his anger can be turned away. Only Jesus, only Jesus on the cross is our only hope. Isaiah 5, it reveals our great need. Now left to ourselves, we're doomed. But as it peels back our great need, it also more clearly shows our only hope is Jesus. One thing needed. He is the one thing. No one else came to pay the price for your sin. No one else can rescue you from the anger of God. No one else would die for you like that. No one would love you like he did. Your greatest need is your eternal need to be reconciled to God. And the only way for that to happen is through trusting Jesus Christ. He is the only thing. Now, we can't make too much of Jesus. We can't think of him too often. We can't love him too dearly. We can't be too committed to him. And let's not refuse Jesus like he's not worth it. He's worth everything. Poured out his blood, put himself under the falling hand of God's anger, and he did that for you. Would you still refuse him? This week, uh, many of you will know Tim Keller, who died this week, a, a pastor from America. Many of us will have benefited from his books, his writing. 
um, massively influential in some ways, you could say greatly successful. Um, but he was uh, reflecting on Luke chapter 10 recently. Um, Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, um, and the 72 have a, have a, a massively successful time. And they come back to Jesus and they're, 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 they're celebrating, they're overjoyed because they say, even the demons fled at their command. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons obeyed you. Don't rejoice in these great successes, good as they are, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Don't rejoice in your successes. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in Jesus. He is what you need most. We can't make too much of him. And yet, I wonder what happens if we hold this passage up as a mirror, not just to ourselves, but also to our society. Then must we not see that despite the centuries separating us, there is much that is familiar. We live among a people who have spurned the word of God, don't think they're accountable to God, forgotten they have a maker. People who chase after more and more, and as they do, they make fun of Jesus and are confused in all kinds of ways about what is right and wrong. People who are wise in their own eyes. And then what then is the destiny of the people among whom we live every day? Now, as we look at our society, it's easy to grumble and complain and be frustrated or just stick our head in the sand. But when Isaiah looks at the people of his time, when he looks at the people around him, there are tears pouring down his face because he loved these people. And he was brokenhearted to see how far they had fallen and where it would come for them. Now we saw previously that the prophet's grief reflects God's own heart. God who is both angry and grieved at their sin. Like our Lord Jesus as he spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem with tears on his face. The tears that tell of his tender compassion to a people who refuse him. And it's in that tender compassion that we who have refused him find our hope. In Isaiah 5, there are tears on the prophet's face when he considers the people among whom he lives. I wonder what is on our cheeks as we consider the people around us. Now when we look at our society, what do we think is most needed? Now, there are many problems, aren't there? We can list them, couldn't we? Climate change, cost of living, threats of war. We can list these great things. We could be concerned and worried about many things. Maybe we should. Uh, but Martha needed only one thing. Only Jesus. And we, like her, we need only one thing. Only Jesus. And for those around us today... Above all the other concerns, people worried and upset about many things, there is one great need. Only Jesus. I wonder if we believe that. Do we pray like that? I wonder if we'll go into this week seeking for God to help us live in that truth that what everyone Let's just take a moment to respond personally in our hearts.